All right, once again, good morning. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21. As we come to Matthew 21, we enter into the last week of Jesus' life before the cross. This week started with Palm Sunday, the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem, presenting himself to the nation as their Messiah and King. Of course, the religious leaders of the nation rejected him, and so now Jesus rejects them. And we're going to see the scribes, chief priests, Pharisees, Sadducees spend the week trying to find something they can accuse Jesus of so they can condemn him to death. Jesus spends much of that time indicting these men for their hypocrisy and warning the nation of God's coming judgment. In fact, he goes as far to predict the destruction of the nation and how the Gentiles who put their trust in him would enjoy the kingdom, the kingdom that was promised to the Jews, well, many of the Jews themselves would be excluded from that kingdom because of unbelief. In fact, this back and forth, as we're going to see, it's kind of like a tag team. <laughs> the Sadducees, Pharisees, scribes, chief priests, uh, all ganging up on Jesus. Not much of a contest, as you're going to see, but uh, they keep coming at him one group at a time, and he keeps, you know, sending them back with a tail between their legs, you know. But the whole thing climaxes, back and forth climaxes in chapter 23, where eight times Jesus denounces these leaders as nothing more than evil, selfish, religious hypocrites whose hearts had become so hard, now they could not believe, and therefore they would not escape the fires of hell. Now, as we come to our passage this morning, remember that Jesus has just cleansed the temple of the money changers and those who sold animals for sacrifice a couple of days earlier. And this caused those who ran the temple concessions to confront Jesus. So in verse 23 we read, now when he came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Interesting question. Had they really believed who Jesus claimed to be, that was God the Son, second person of the Trinity, they would never have asked such a question. The question, of course, exposed the unbelief in their hearts, but that really didn't matter to these men. They weren't concerned about things like faith and eternal life. They were nothing more than greedy materialists. And as such, they were more concerned about the profits Jesus had cost them than they were about the uh, destiny of their eternal souls. And so they challenged him by saying, What authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? By these things, it probably means all the things that had happened in the last few days, starting from Palm Sunday. His triumphal entry, he comes to the temple and people are praising him, crying, the little children crying Hosanna, which means save now, recognizing him to be the, to be the Messiah. Uh, of course, uh, he accepts that praise. He uh, reaffirms the fact that he is Messiah. But a bit, the big thing, I think, the thing that irked them the most was the fact that he cleansed the temple. As I said earlier, they were furious because Jesus had driven out of the court of the Gentiles, the money changers. Those who sold doves and other animals for sacrifice. These were very lucrative concessions that put a lot of money in the coffers and ultimately the pockets of these corrupt men. And so they demanded to know who had given Jesus the authority to do these. Say, who do you think you are coming in here and chasing out our money changers and all the animals? Don't you know we make a good living off this stuff? Who do you think you are? Well, I think he thinks he's God. They, know he, they didn't give him that authority, all right? Now, let me just say this. Authority is an important concept 
that denotes power and control over people and situations. It's a word that finds its ultimate meaning and importance within the context of the three primary institutions God created for the function of society, that is the church, excuse me, the family, the church, and civil government. In all three of these, God has delegated authority to parents, to ecclesiastical leaders like pastors, elders, and then to civil authorities or leaders to lead families, churches, and society, listen, in the fear of God. We know that godly leadership does great good, while ungodly leadership has done great harm. But once again, all authority is delegated to individuals by God himself. God is the ultimate authority over all of creation. God has the authority to rule because God created everything. And if God does allow man to um, be involved in this governing process, it's always a delegated authority because all authority ultimately resides with God. Now, Jesus said this numerous times about his own ministry. I'll read you one passage. There are a number of these where Jesus said in John 14, verse 10, talking to his disciples, he said, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. And Jesus said this numerous times in different ways. He said, I can say nothing except what the Father has given me to say. I do only those things the Father has told me to do. The works that I do are not mine. They are my Father's. He's the one who has given me the authority to do the works in his name, etc. So these guys asking who gave you this authority ought to know better. These were supposed to be spiritual leaders, guys. They should have known better as to who delegated authority came from. And Jesus had proved he had authority because he was casting out demons, he healed the sick, he worked miracles, he demonstrated he had power over disease, over nature, over all creation through his ministry. He had obviously been given authority. And he claimed it was from God the Father. We believe that. These men challenged his authority. In verse 24, Jesus doesn't answer their question directly, but he does ask them a question or answers them in this way. Verse 24, they said to him, you know, about what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you that authority? He said, I also will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you about what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or from men? Now, why did Jesus ask them this question about John the Baptist as to who they believed he was? Because John came first, testifying of Jesus, that he was the long-awaited Messiah and King of Israel. As we have said numerous times, John was the forerunner or the herald for Jesus Christ, who was the King of Kings. Every king back then had a herald, a forerunner, who would go into an area before the king, announce the king's coming. And the idea was, you know, uh, let's get your yards cleaned up, you know, get those, uh, you know, that junk off the lawns, paint these fences and so on. Uh, Prepare your houses, the king is coming. Well, John came telling people, prepare your hearts for the king of kings is coming. But John didn't take this ministry uh, upon himself of his own accord. In fact, it was prophesied that he would come. Way back in Malachi 3, verse 1, God himself said, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Behold, I send my messenger. And then John the Apostle opens up his gospel with these words, There was a man sent from God. 
whose name was John, John the Baptist. John said, This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. John's ministry was not to bear witness of himself, but to bear witness of the light, capital L, Jesus Christ, to testify to all who would listen, the King is coming. You're long awaited Messiah. Verse 8, he was not that light, John was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light, Jesus Christ. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. So John the Baptist received authority from God to announce the coming of Messiah. And his message was simple. As we just said, it was repent and prepare your hearts to receive the king. Now, when John first came on the scene, he was a novelty. Why do I say that? Because there hadn't been a prophet in Israel for 400 years. The Old Testament ended with the book of Malachi, right? And the last thing God said in the book of Malachi to close out the Old Testament was, I'm going to strike the earth with a curse. That's how the Old Testament ended, with a curse. Old Testament law. Law always ends in a curse. The New Testament started out with Jesus, whom John the Apostle said, uh, he is full of grace and truth. So the New Testament opens with grace. The Old Testament closes with a curse. But after God spoke the words of Malachi, uh, recorded in Malachi that he was going to strike the earth with a curse, God stopped broadcasting, you might say. He went off the air. And for 400 years, in fact, the Jews call these 400 years the 400 silent years. There was no prophet in Israel. For 400 years they had not heard these words, thus says the Lord. Then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, comes a man in the wilderness crying out, saying, Make straight the way of the Lord. He is coming. Prepare your hearts to receive him. All of a sudden there was a prophet in Israel once again. And initially the Jewish establishment, the leadership, was quite excited about that. Especially when they heard his message. Sinners, repent. Of course, the Sadducees and Pharisees and chief priests and scribes, that's right, get him, John. Tell those sinners to repent. Of course, his ministry lost a lot of luster for them, uh, and they turned hostile toward John and rejected his message when uh, he directed it at them as some of the greatest sinners of the nation that needed to repent. In fact, you can turn to Matthew chapter 3. I'll show you what I mean. You know, people will love you when you say what they want to hear. They'll even love you when you get somebody they don't like. But directed at them, ouch. But in Matthew 3, starting in verse 1, we read, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. So John had quite a following. He was out in the wilderness and he was still drawing tremendous crowds. This gained the attention of the leadership in Jerusalem. And so they wanted to come out and kind of be identified with John. You know, you always want to hook your wagon to a star and they wanted to, you know, John was very popular with the people. They wanted to kind of get on board with John. So they went out there to be baptized by John. Not that they felt they had anything to repent of, no doubt. But here they are, right? Well, here's how John handles them, right? Verse 7. 
Though when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers. Now, I can't figure out why they didn't like John. You know, I mean, he obviously had finished the course how to win friends and influence people. I don't know why they were so down on him, but brood of, you know, children of snakes, basically. Uh, Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, the fires of judgment. And so Jesus Christ counters their question with another question. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or men? Now, Jesus' question caught these hypocrites on the horns of a dilemma, and they knew it. They knew it. Verse 25, And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude, for all count John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus and said, We don't know. Uh, There was no way out, so they simply copped out. We don't know. And so Jesus responded in verse 27, Well, then neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Since these guys refuse to give Jesus a direct answer, he now refuses to give them a direct answer. Now listen, you have to understand, he knew that had he given them a direct answer, they would only have used it against him anyways. These men weren't interested in the truth about John or Jesus. The only thing they wanted was to get Jesus to say something they could use against him to condemn him with. I mean, if he had said to them plainly, my authority comes from heaven because God is my father. Well, they would have jumped on that, arrested him, and put him on trial for blasphemy. He knew that. See, they wanted to use this opportunity to condemn Jesus, but he turned the tables on them and used that very opportunity to condemn them. In verse 28 we read, What do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. And he answered and said, I will not. But afterward he regretted it, he repented, and went. Then he came to the second son and said, Likewise. And he said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of of his father? And they said to him, The first. Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him, and when you saw it, you did not afterwards relent or repent and believe him. Now, the point of the parable is to show that obedience is more important than lip service, obviously. And that even if a person initially says no to God, in other words, God, I don't want you in my life, I don't want you telling me what to do, no. But later on, rethinks it, repents, and does the will of God, That's much better than the person who promises to do God's will, but never, in fact, does it. Of course, we don't have to speculate as to what the full meaning or interpretation of this parable is. Jesus explains it to us. He says, in this parable, he, he says, one of the sons represents the nation of Israel in general, but the Jewish leadership in particular. And the other son represents the Gentiles in general, but those Gentiles who were the worst sinners in particular. Jesus is saying that those Jews who were good at giving God lip service 
were like his son who initially gave his father the promise that he would go and serve him, but never did. The Jewish people were God's chosen people. And as such, they were good at singing his praises and promising to live for him with their lives. But their history had shown up until the present, up until the time of Jesus, that they were good at giving him lip service and telling him how much they honored him and how much they loved him and, and oh, how we want to obey you, Lord. But they never did any of it. They lived their lives in open rebellion. For all their lip service, they did just the opposite. And of course, their rebellion reached its climax when they rejected their own Messiah and had him crucified. Look, why didn't the nation, including its leaders, heed the message of John the Baptist and repent? Probably because they believed that simply being a descendant of Abraham and having undergone the rite of circumcision was all they needed to get into the kingdom of heaven. This is something Paul addresses uh, quite often in the New Testament. I'm thinking of Galatians primarily, where Paul, of course a Jew, is looking at his countrymen. Because Paul at one time was a Pharisee, and uh, he was under the law, and he knew all the ins and outs and all the people that were in that group and so on. And he knew how many of them, including himself at one time, until he got his eyes opened by the Holy Spirit and got saved. But Paul knew how many of his countrymen, especially the religious leadership, were putting all their faith for salvation in the fact that they were the literal descendants of Abraham and had been circumcised in the flesh. And Paul goes into great detail, especially in the book of Galatians, to say, look, you have to understand something, that you can have the blood of Abraham in your veins without the faith of Abraham in your heart, and it's worthless. Don't you understand that Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael, and both of them were his descendants, but only Isaac had faith. Ishmael was not a believer, even though he had the blood of Abraham in his veins. And by the way, God pronounced... Abraham righteous, Genesis 15, 6, 14 years before he was circumcised. So that doesn't mean anything, those rituals and things Paul was saying. And the Jewish people didn't listen to the message of John because I'm a descendant of Abraham, I've been circumcised, the men believe, so why should I repent for anything? I'm going to heaven already. Besides the fact they didn't like what John had to say. And they liked even less what Jesus had to say when he came and began to teach Whereas the Gentiles, especially the ones who were the biggest sinners and rebellion and rebels against God in society, the tax collectors and harlots, they're the ones who initially with their lives says no to, said no to God. But then, as they listened to the message of John, John's message finally won them over. And they did repent, receive Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior, and then went on to live for him with their lives. Now, which group really did the will of the Father? Well, Jesus asked that very question to these men. Verse 31, once again, which of the two did the will of his father? They said to him, the first. Jesus said to them, assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterwards basically get on board with the program, repent, and get your life right too. I'm paraphrasing that, of course. Look, this parable gets into any person. Let's bring it to America. It gets into any religious person's life who offers God lip service but doesn't back it up with a life that is lived for his glory. And we have myriads of people in this country, guys, who grew up in particular Christian denominations who think they're right with God because they have been born into a certain denomination. 
They have gone to church most of their lives from when they were small. They have been baptized. They have been confirmed. They have gone through certain rituals and ceremonies that the churches or the denominations dictated. And so for all of that, they feel they're right with God. And we have a country filled with these kinds of folks. And yet for all the religious doings and lip service, Many of them have really never made a commitment to Jesus Christ, even though they go to church every single week. Say, how do you know that? Because their lives have not changed. They go to church. For many people, church is a social outlet. For others, it's a business opportunity where they can come, make contacts, network with people. make. They're doing the very thing the Sadducees did in the temple. It was all about people coming to the temple so that they can make money off of them. There are folks who come to church so they can make money off other people. It's the same thing. It's the same hypocrisy. Although we don't see it that way because after all, we're Christians living in a Christian nation, we think. People don't realize that the title means nothing. Remember what Jesus said in dictating the letter in Revelation 2 or 3 to the church of Sardis? He said, I know you have a name, but you are what? Dead. I don't care if you call yourself Catholic, Lutheran, Methodist, Presbyterian. The label you stick on yourself has nothing to do with what's going on in your heart. If you really love me and believe in me, it would show itself in what works its way out into your life. Jesus said you will know them by their what? Fruit, of course. Fruit. Anyone can say they love Jesus, believe in Jesus, but if their lives are not being lived for Jesus, you know what? It's empty profession. It's meaningless, just like these religious leaders back in Jesus' day who give, gave God lip service all day long but never did anything with their lives to really honor him. Turn to Luke chapter 6. I'll show you what I mean. Now, Jesus is talking here in Luke 6 to a group of would-be disciples. Jesus had a lot of people that followed him that weren't really saved. Just like we just said, there's a lot of people going to church uh, churches in America who follow, are following Jesus, quote-unquote, who are not really saved. And at one point, he turned to them and challenged them about this. He said in Luke 6, starting in verse 46, he said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord? So these folks are not atheists or agnostics. They are followers of Christ. They call him Lord. They give him that lip service. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? And do not do the things which I say. Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose and the stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it, for it was founded on a rock. But he who heard my words and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation against which the stream beat vehemently and immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. What's the uh, interpretation? Very simply, the houses that eat, the house that each man built was his faith. Was his faith. They both called Jesus Lord, and so therefore they both went to churches that taught, the Christian churches who taught that Jesus Christ was in fact Lord. They may have even gone to the same church. I don't think there was anything fundamentally different about their faith per se. The, the difference was uh, the foundation upon which each was built. One built his faith on what? The rock. What does the rock represent? Well, he said, Jesus said, he who hears my words and does them, or who obeys. It's a wise man. But he who hears my words and does nothing is a foolish man who built his house on the sand or on the earth. What is the storm? It represents judgment day in my mind. 
on the day of judgment, every one of us is going to have to stand before Jesus Christ, and he's going to test our faith to see if it was genuine or not. He knows, but we're going to find out. We're going to find out. And guys, the only evidence that your faith is genuine is by what comes out of your life in the way of obedience. You know, it's James said, you, you can be hearers of the word of God and uh, it'd be meaningless if you're not a doer of the word, right? Coming to church and hearing God's word, that's wonderful. God bless you guys. But if it doesn't affect the way you live your life, it's meaningless. In fact, it's deceptive because you think because you hear the word, that's all you need. When in fact, the whole goal is that you would live the word. Now, listen to me. Jesus is not saying to those who love him but are weak, stumble, want to obey but keep falling into sin. This is not about you. This is contrasting blatant hypocrites. People who come here, the word had no, no intention of really living it out in their lives. They're not going to stop sleeping with their boyfriend or girlfriend. They're not going to stop ripping off the company. They're not going to stop taking drugs or whatever. They have no intention of changing their life. Why they come to church again, I don't even know. But they do come because they like you folks. And it's nice to be around nice people. And, and maybe there's some benefit in it. I think a lot, we've had a lot of people that come to church because they build relationships and then begin to ask people for money and so on. And that happens too. But let me say this. Jesus is contrasting blatant hypocrisy with those who have genuine faith. Now, that genuine faith can mean you're not perfect, obviously. We're all going to blow it. We're not going to always obey it completely or perfectly. But does our heart want to obey? And that's the thing. So Jesus indicted these men for hypocrisy through this little parable. The good news, on the other hand, is that Jesus' parable and his explanation of it that no matter how rebellious your life has been against the commandments of God, and no matter how long you lived in that rebellion, as long as there's still breath in your body, there's still time to repent and receive Him as your Lord and Savior. See, that was the, the other side to this. Condemning those uh, who were living in hypocrisy had no, I, no uh, uh, heart to do any changing. But it was also something that would give hope to those who were who felt their lives were so bad that Jesus' ministry gave hope to the hopeless all the time, the tax collectors, the harlots, those people that the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and so on said could never make it to heaven, they were too bad. Jesus came and said, if you believe on me, I'll wash your sins away and you'll get into heaven because of my righteousness. So Jesus gave hope. Now there are always those who say, well, my life has been too bad for too long. And again, if you have breath in your body, are you alive? Well, I think so. Some days I'm not sure, but yeah, I think so. Well, if you're alive, there's still time to repent, receive Christ, and get saved. You say, well, how do you know that, Pastor? Well, I always think of the thief who died next to Jesus, crucified between two thieves. One of them, while they were all hanging on the cross, recognized him to be Lord, repented of his sins, and received him as his Lord and Savior. And what did Jesus say to him? Ah, too late. Uh, you know, I wish you would have caught me yesterday. I mean, you know, it's, you know, it's a little too late now. I said, today you'll be with me in paradise, right? I'd say, I've told you this story before. And if, I know there's a lot of new folks here, so if you've heard it, bear with me. The closest I ever saw anybody cut this, I mean, receiving Christ before they died, was our own Pastor Bob Gertz. Years ago, about 15 or so years ago, Pastor Bob's dad was very ill. And we were praying for him, and he wasn't a believer, although Bob had witnessed to him many times. He hadn't received Christ. 
And Bob wanted to witness to him one more time because he was getting close to death. And, but the family was always over there. You know, it's hard with the family because they weren't believers and they're mocking you and get out of here and stop talking about this, you know, and you're upsetting him and so on. So I said, let's pray. So we prayed that God would open a door where Bob could get to his dad one last time with nobody else in the room. Well, a couple days later, Bob visits his dad in a morning, one morning, and sure enough, nobody's in the room. So he sits down next to his dad, who was coherent, he was awake, and he witnessed to his dad. And then he asked his father, Dad, do you want to pray to receive Jesus? And by the grace of God, his dad said, yes. So Bob led him in a sinner's prayer, and as soon as Bob said, in Jesus' name, amen, he flatlined. The alarm went off, code blue was announced, people rushed in with the paddles and so on, but he was gone. Ushered into the presence of Jesus. But wow, that was cutting it close. I'm telling you. Woo! Praise God, but do you have to... I don't know, man, that was close. That was the closest I ever heard. Um, but it's never too late until you're dead to receive Jesus is the point, okay? Now, let me close with just a few more words pertaining to the idea of authority because the whole passage, guys revolves around Jesus' authority, doesn't it? Do you realize that all of mankind's problems can be traced back to the issue of authority? And in particular, who has the right to have authority over our lives? Is it us or God? Now, God created us. And God feels that he has the right to have authority. Okay? He doesn't feel, he knows. And so in the garden, he places Adam and Eve, right? And says to them, you can eat of all the trees except for one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. One prohibition, one command that they were to obey. They didn't, right? When they ate that forbidden fruit, guys, whether we know it or not, that was their emancipation proclamation. That was their declaration of independence. I will, we will not have, have God rule over our lives. We're going to do what we want to do. We think the fruit looks good. I don't care what God says, I'm going to eat it. And when they did, they fell. Sin entered the human race, mankind fell, and now we fast forward 6,000 years, and as we look back at the last 6,000 years, years of human history up until this point, we can see it's a very tragic story, isn't it? Of man persecuting and killing and hurting his fellow man. It's a story of violence and selfishness and pride and wickedness and all these things, all the result of the fact that man threw off in the Garden of Eden God's authority over his life and imposed himself as God the ultimate authority over his own life. And we see it today, don't we, guys? Most of the people in our nation believe that they have the right to decide what's right and wrong and to live their lives as they choose. They have abandoned the idea of absolute of moral absolutes in favor of moral relativism. The idea that my truth is my truth and your truth is your truth. And if it works for you and feels good, it's okay. This philosophy has brought us to a period in our nation's history, not unlike the period that the nation of Israel entered into under the judges. One of the blackest periods in Israel's history a time that was characterized by these words, which were repeated about five or six times throughout the book, there was no king in Israel, no sovereign authority. Therefore, every man did whatever seemed right in his own eyes. And that's exactly what happens when you throw God out of your life or out of society. 
you throw out his moral absolutes. And you begin to make the rules yourself. You know what God said about this? You should read uh, Jeremiah 10. God said, look, all you uh, gods with a little g, you know, all you people who think you're God, you can make the rules, live the way you want. Guess what? God with a big G is going to judge you someday. Because unless you have made heaven and earth, unless you're true, the true and living God, you don't have the right to, you don't get to make the rules. We don't get to make the rules. Today people think they, they have that right. But God is saying, you don't have that right to make the rules, to live the way you want. Oh, you can do that now. But someday you're going to stand before me. And you're going to give an account for everything you did, contrary to what I have said. And you will be held responsible. But today everyone, because they want to do whatever seems right in their own eyes, without anyone opposing them, they naturally don't want to be in opposition to anyone else. And so... The idea is you accept the way I choose to live and I'll accept the way you choose to live and we won't judge each other. That's the general attitude of our day. You know, if I want to live any old way I want, I can't judge you for living any old way you want. So misery loves company. Well, you know, rebels like to, they find each other. So we won't judge each other. And this is why we hear so much today in our society about tolerance and acceptance, inclusiveness. And love, which the world defines, is basically a, is accepting whatever people want to do and how they want to live, because to speak out against immorality and sin is to be judgmental, bigoted, self-righteous, and unloving. You've heard the charges, right? And it's getting worse, isn't it? It's getting worse. I mean, the more we stand up for righteousness, because evil men, as Paul said, are growing worse and worse, the more their hatred is growing towards those who represent the light. You know, we're like John the Baptist, okay? We are testifying of the light. Only the light, we're not pointing to the light, the light has come inside of us. We are the light of the world. And by virtue of the fact that we are the light of the world shining in a dark, immoral, godless environment, well, the world hates us. And we dare speak out for God and righteousness. They are going to attack us as they are doing. Now, to those who make this claim, that they have the authority over their lives to make the rules and to live any way they want, we only, we as Christians, only have one thing to ask them. By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you that authority? I'll tell you what Jesus said in the subject of authority. Why don't you turn to Matthew 28. I don't know what person or character thinks they've got authority over their life. I don't really care. The only one I'm concerned about listening to is Jesus. And listen to what he said in Matthew 28, starting at verse 18. He said, all, doesn't mean some, it means all. All authority has been given to who? To me, in heaven and on earth. Talking to his disciples, to all of us, he said, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe whatever they feel like doing. Whatever they think is right. To obey their truth. I don't see that in my Bible. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Way back in the Old Testament, God gave his ten commandments. They're not ten suggestions. They're ten commandments. When God speaks, he speaks definitively. He never stutters. He always speaks clearly and definitively. You know why? Because he's God. 
he doesn't have an identity crisis, okay? He's not going through this, you know, who am I phase. What's life all about? Who am I really? God knows exactly who he is. He knows exactly what he's about. He knows exactly what's right and wrong. And when he speaks, he speaks with clarity and definitively because he's God. He makes the rules. We don't. Now, we don't have to live according to God's rules, as I said. You can live your life any way you want right now. But there is a day of judgment coming. And Paul the Apostle described it by saying, in that day, every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. In other words, everybody someday is going to acknowledge Jesus is Lord. Now, only a certain, number of the, a certain amount of those people are going to benefit from that statement. You know who they are? The ones who say that right now before they die. On Judgment Day, every unbeliever is going to be resurrected to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. And at that point, they will say, you are Lord, and bow the knee. It's too late then. The only thing left for them is judgment. Now, Peter, when he was sent by the Holy Spirit to the house of Cornelius and his family to preach the gospel to some Gentile unbelievers who wanted to know the truth, listen to what Peter said in Acts 10, verse 42. He said, and he, Jesus Christ, commanded us to preach to the people, all people, and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God the Father to judge the living and the dead. Look, Jesus Christ has authority. His word is truth, absolute truth. If you accept it and you receive him as Lord and Savior, he will bless you. You become a child of God. You'll live with him for eternity in heaven. If you reject his words, live your life in rebellion, he has the authority to judge you because he is Lord of all. I'll give you one more scripture and we'll close. This is a scripture that Peter gave to all of us who are Christians. But in it, he talks about not only our life now, but he talks about what's coming for unbelievers. In 1 Peter 4, starting in verse 3, Peter said, You have had enough in the past of evil things and that godless people enjoy. You've had enough of that old life, okay? Their immorality and lust and feasting and drunkenness and wild parties and that their terrible worship of idols. Of course, your former friends are surprised when you no longer plunge into the flood of wild and destructive things they do. So they slander you. But remember that they will have to face God who will judge everyone, both the living and the dead. There is a day of judgment coming. If you do not bow the knee to Jesus Christ now and call him Lord, someday you will on the day of judgment, but it will be too late. Let me just close by saying to those here who are Christians, I hope you realize that authority and submission is the very cornerstone of the Christian faith, of the Christian life. Authority and submission. When we gave our lives to Jesus, we placed ourselves under his authority voluntarily. He never commanded us to be Christians. He invites us to be saved. And if we come to him, we accept his invitation, and most of you in this room have done that. What you did was you gave up the authority over your own life to live as his slave. I know your New Testament's translated servants, but if it's the Greek word doulos, it always means slaves. He becomes our master, we become his slaves. And don't you know, he's the best master you could ever have. And as Paul said, once you give your life to Christ, we are no longer, we no longer belong to ourselves. We belong to him now. We are to glorify him in every 
area of our lives because he is to be Lord of all. And as somebody has said, if Jesus Christ isn't Lord of all, he isn't Lord at all. This idea that I can give Jesus control of some areas of my life, but the others I'm going to kind of keep for myself, you, you don't understand what Christianity is. It really is. Jesus is Lord, and he's not a partial Lord. He's not a part-time Lord. He is Lord of all. And if he's your Lord, then obedience, guys, isn't optional. It's mandatory. You know, you can't say to him like Peter did on, uh, in Acts chapter 10, uh, not so, Lord. Remember when the sheet came down from heaven in a vision that Peter had and saw all these animals, clean and unclean, and the Lord says, uh, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And he said, not so, Lord. I have never eaten anything unclean from my youth. And God said, Peter, don't call unclean what I have cleansed. Not only can you eat all animals now, but you are now to go to the house of the Gentiles and preach the gospel to them because I'm opening the door to the Gentiles now because I'm doing a new thing. I'm, I'm making a brand new creation, the church. It's going to contain Jew and Gentile brought together in one body in Christ, thus making peace. There'll be no more enmity between Jew and Gentile. Even there is no longer any enmity between those who believe in my son and myself. There is peace. But if Jesus is Lord... You cannot, as a slave, say, not so, Lord. Listen, disobedience to the Lord in any area of our lives is open rebellion against his authority over every area of our lives and is the root of all the problems we face in our lives. Here's the problem, guys. When we only give Jesus partial control of our lives because we don't either trust him to take full control in these other areas, or we're not ready to give up sins and things that we're kind of holding on to, and therefore we don't want to give him control over, those are the areas of our lives we are going to have problems. We see problems in Christians' lives all over this country, and you know what? I have never seen a time in my ministry, but as I read the history of the Christian church in America over the last couple hundred years, I don't think there's ever been a time in our nation's history where the church has been more carnal, more full of problems than it is today. We see marriage. Let's, let's just talk about marriage for a minute. Do you know how many Christian marriages are crumbling and have been destroyed? How many Christians have gotten divorced? It's the same ratio as the world. I said back in 1871, I saw a startling statistic that said there was only one Christian divorce for every 1,000 divorces of unbelievers. A thousand to one. Today it's one for one. There are as many Christian divorces in America as there are secular divorces. And when people, Christians come into my office, and other pastors can attest to you the same thing, and they're going through very severe marital problems, it's always, well, he's doing this and not doing that, or she won't do this for me, or, uh, you know, he needs a change here, or she needs a change there, getting our eyes on the other person. And I'll look at the man and go, look, you are not cherishing your wife. You are not putting her first. You are not being to her as Christ is to his bride. My friend, you don't have a marital problem. You've got a lordship problem. You are not submitting to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ in your life. And I'll turn to the gal and say, look, you are not submitting to your husband as God has told you to submit to him. You are fighting him. You are emasculating him. You are challenging him at every turn and every decision he wants to make as a godly leader. You are fighting that because you're trying to usurp authority. Uh, young lady or, or ma'am, you don't have a marital problem. You've got a lordship problem. 
Every area of our life where we have problems, I don't care what it is, a bad habit, a relationship, whatever it might be, at work, uh, maybe your business, you know, your business is, is crumbling because, you know, it's been so bad you've been having to fudge the books or misrepresent the product or actually flat out lie to the government and, and so now your business is going down. You don't have a business problem. You've got a lordship problem. When you obey God and what he has said for you to do, he will bless your business, your marriage, your family, and every other area of your life. He will give you victory over the flesh. He will do all that he has claimed to do because guess what? If he's Lord of all, he is victorious over all because he gained the victory on Calvary's cross and vanquished over principalities and powers, right? Every one of them now has to bow to his authority. They are under his feet. And because we are in him, we have the same victory over every area of our flesh and the devil in the world that he won victory over, which is all of it, if we will submit to him in all these areas. You hold on to these things, hang on to the bitterness in your marriage or bitterness towards somebody else or you're you know, not willing to let go of the cigarettes or the alcohol or the gambling or the pornography, yet you crowd, God help me, but you're really not looking to run from these things. It's really not a gambling problem or a pornography problem. It's a lordship problem. Jesus Christ needs to be Lord of every area of our lives. And that means you acknowledge his authority over every area of your life. And I'm convinced, guys, if we do that, because he's already won the victory, he will begin to live his life through us. We will see victory in every area of our life that we've had problems with, defeat in. He will give us victory. So the authority of Jesus, a very important subject, and one I think that God wants us to understand in this new year that we can begin to submit to him, repent of the areas of compromise, carnality, rebellion. Begin to turn them over to him. Say, Lord, you're, you're the Lord of all. Forgive me for trying to control this area of my life, my marriage, this, my business. I need to let go and trust you completely and be obedient to what you have said for me to do. If I do that, I'm convinced you will begin to make things right and bring blessing and victory into my life amen father we thank you so much that jesus christ has won the victory we don't have to lord uh, fight against the flesh the world the devil jesus christ won those battles at calvary's cross and three days later as he rose from the dead he is victorious over every principality and power over every demon of hell over every world leader, over every area of the flesh, if we will just submit our lives to you, Lord, completely, you will give us total victory. So, Lord, we thank you for bringing this principle once again to our attention. And in this new year, we ask for grace, Lord, to honestly examine ourselves for areas of rebellion that we are not turning over to your authority and control, that by your grace we might do that that we might walk in obedience and see you then, Lord, give us the victory you've promised us. Father, we ask all this now in Jesus' precious name. Amen.